We are live now on the Conversations That Matter podcast. We have a, a number of books that I want to talk about today. I've tried to narrow down the list of uh, red pill books, which is hard because there's a lot. And uh, some I didn't include. Some I, I wonder whether or not I can even include because of uh, the restrictions YouTube has, unfortunately. And uh, while I don't uh, necessarily always abide by those restrictions, in fact, in the past, I've done some live streams and uh, or, or I should say videos that I've uploaded, I put them on Rumble and then an edited version on YouTube. Um, I, I do tend to try to stay as, as much above board as, as I can because most of the listeners are on YouTube. So um, so anyway, we, we, we'll, we'll see where things go. Uh, I'm open to questions. I'm open to uh, people uh, who call in. Uh, I let the patrons know yesterday. If you are a patron of this podcast, pa- patreon.com forward slash worldview conversation, you can uh, be part of the podcast. And uh, today is kind of a free for all. You can bring up any topic you want. I mean, I'm kind of encouraging people to talk about uh, whether in the comments or if you call in the books that really kind of red pilled you. And uh, but you can talk about anything and and ask me really any question. And if I don't know, I'll say I don't know. Um, but I do want to say I want to start off the podcast by just uh, giving you a personal update. I appreciate all the prayers and encouragement. Uh, I've, I feel like I've needed a lot of that lately with uh, the, the tragedies that are going on um, in the, the lives of myself and my wife. And, and uh, you know, I almost feel bad for, for needing so much of that. But um, I, I do appreciate it. I mean, we all go through seasons. And this is definitely a season for me. And I didn't really understand. I still don't understand the extent to which um, my grandfather's death would affect me there's been other deaths in the family. There's been other deaths of friends, but this one has been especially hard for me. And, and I think one of the reasons for that is I had, uh, and my wife and I were talking about this actually last night, cause she had the same thing with her mom. I had visions of my mind, things I wanted to do with him. And I know he was, he was 101. I mean, he was, he was very old. Uh, and, and I, you know, maybe some people would think, well, that's kind of ridiculous to, to, to be planning ahead when, when someone's 101, but I've had, um, I, I actually spent a year living in California in, in, in like 2010, 2011. And, and since that time, especially, I've really wanted to finish my grandfather's story of World War II because I, I interviewed him extensively. I have all his letters from the war. I have uh, audio recordings. I even have video recordings. I spent a significant amount of time yesterday editing some of those video recordings. And I've just really I, I wanted to like make a book. And, and I just I never could. I never could. I, I got like a chapter and a half in. And I would slowly work on it here and there. But there was always like social justice stuff or, you know, other projects. And, and it seemed like it was always an emergency. Like, you know, John, we need you right now. No one else is really. Um, and it's not that I'm I, I don't want it to sound arrogant. I'm not like irreplaceable. But there was a time, especially uh, 2020, 20, 2021. And I still feel this at times that what I've said on this podcast, what I've written in book form, it's just not being said. The critiques of social justice, I think most of them that are popular are still inadequate. And I just felt like, and I think I think it was the right thing to, to put time into that. But anyway, I, I really wanted to finish the story. So now I am going to finish it, but it's going to be more for his great grandkids and, uh, and and those who come after. And I, and I want it to be good. And, and so anyway, that was one of the things. And the other thing was I really wanted him to, you know, it's just special when you, when you have your grandfather or your grandmother, uh, someone in that generation holding your child and because my wife and i and i mentioned this in the last episode um had some fertility issues it just was delayed 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 and now we're pregnant and that's when he passes away so my last conversation with him on christmas was what was about that and he said you know he, he would look forward um actually i'm not sure i'm trying to think if it was that conversation or the one before that um i think it was the one before that which was like maybe thanksgiving or, or maybe it was a few weeks before christmas but he he, he was lo- looking forward to meeting the child and uh but then I, I had plans to go out there in january and just i am going out there but it's for a funeral instead so anyway that's probably way more personal details than most of you wanted but some of you do uh appreciate that kind of an update and um i i have just been busy i went to california for a few days and was um, hopefully helpful and comforting the family who was there especially my grandma who i stayed with and i'm going back in two weeks for the funeral and um i'm trying to put together a bunch of video stuff. I recorded him actually quite a bit. Sometimes I think without his knowledge, sometimes with his knowledge, he just didn't say anything. Uh, because I, I don't know if he, if he, if, if it was more formal, I couldn't do that with him. He's one of those, some of you understand this, like 
once you put a camera in front of someone who doesn't really, they're not formal and they don't really, it changes the dynamic. I didn't want to change the dynamic. So I have a bunch of uh, somewhat covert, I guess, operations. And don't worry, I don't do that with anyone else, really. <laughs> I've never, I don't think I've ever filmed anyone else. I've recorded maybe if like, like I could count on one hand, probably two or three conversations in my life um, without the other person knowing only in states that were one party consent, uh, you know, for, for whatever reason, I've never, I don't think I've ever recorded a phone call. So it's not, it's not a habit of mine to do that. But with him, I knew he was getting older and I really wanted to, I wanted to have, I wanted my children to know what he was like if they didn't get a chance to interact with him. And, and you don't always get that through writing. So anyway, I, I've been editing some of that stuff. I've been posting some of it on my Facebook page for those who are on Facebook, but, uh, Anyway, uh, I should probably move on from that. It's been a big part of my life the last few weeks. But um, I've also, just so everyone knows, uh, since I haven't been podcasting, I have been working hard, though, on something else. And that's the 1607 Project. Uh, we're calling the documentary for it Virginia First. There will be a book called the 1607 Project that accompanies it. It is a series of essays on everything from economics to religion to uh, uh, government to music. It's all about the founding of the United States through Jamestown, which is a story that's not often told. It's usually told, especially in our circles. And what I mean by our circles, more evangelical conservative circles, it's Plymouth. It's the Puritans. This is not that. This is a story for some of you. You may never have heard it, to be honest with you. It, 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 I, I, it hit me as I was doing some editing this week. This really is something unique. And it wasn't that long ago. I mean, this was something that, especially if you go back to like the 19th century, people would have been familiar with. But um, it, the the story really does start in Jamestown. And most of the things that we consider American, the, the positive things that we're proud of, they really are rooted back to Jamestown. And so that's what the 1607 Project is about. It's not 1619. In fact, that's why we started this was to to, to uh, compete with those, compete with the 1619 Project, compete even with the 1776 Commission, which was almost, it was about as bad, to be honest with you. It's just, it, it wasn't accurate. And so, uh, so I'm excited about that. And that's premiering next February. I should have probably had it queued up, but you can go to the Abbeville Institute's website to their events, Abbeville Institute. And if you go there, there's uh, an event at, at the events page, you'll see 1607 Project, and it there it's in uh, Georgia, south of Atlanta. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of it. Cal Cal Callaway, I think is the name. Callaway Gardens, beautiful place, by the way. I've been there once, and, and it's just a, a great place. And so, if you if you have the means to be there, I'd love to meet you. If not, that's totally fine. It is going to be made available publicly. But uh, I've I've been Mr. Editor lately, which is not usually my forte with documentaries. I'll I'll do the interviews. Um, I usually don't even film the interviews. This one though, I filmed all the interviews. I've done all the travel. I've done a lot of the editing uh, because I, I've gone painstakingly through every part of this hour and a half long uh, documentary and suggested the B-roll and everything else. So so that's what I've been up to. Um, before we get into uh, the, the books, which I know many of you are waiting for, I do want to give a shout out here to a sponsor for uh, this particular uh, podcast. And I'm thankful for them. And um, actually, I've talked to uh, the owner of this particular podcast websites on the phone and great guy christian man uh you know i'm not going to give you his address but <laughs> he's uh let's just say he you know he 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 just gave off the the right the kind of impression you want from someone whose business you would like to support he gave that impression to me uh definitely someone i want to support screenfirst.com or I, I should rephrase that it is screenitfirst.com screenitfirst.com and this is a website for you parents that I think will be very helpful. And, and they're in the phase right now of needing to gather information. So uh, there, there's a few books, I think, on it right now, but they need more. So th this is you can be part of the ground floor of this project for free. There's no sign up. It's not even an app. It's just a website, screenitfirst.com. And what it does is it gives parents the opportunity to screen books that their children may read. So what kind of books, what, what kind of uh, themes in books are we talking about? Well, there's foul language in books. There's violence and death. There's sexual content. There's LGBTQIA plus stuff. There's uh, alcohol and drugs. They list racism as one of the things, lying, stealing, uh, dark content, like scary things. Uh, children, especially younger age children, uh, that may be hard. Uh, potty humor. Um, 
and it, explicit content. There, there's just a, a lot of um, things in books, depending on the age of your child, that you may want to be aware of before they start reading a book. Maybe they're given a book on their birthday or for Christmas or a relative or someone who's trusted, but uh, in, in but you but you don't know all the details and you don't have the time. You don't have the time to read these books. So go to screenitfirst.com and you can look up various books. You can find out what's in and what other parents have found objectionable or at least things that they sh think you should know about. And if you're a parent who's reviewing a book, you can be the one to help other parents donate your time. They even have a section here uh, with with books. It says help screen books. And I, I'm clicking on it right now. It's going to take me to a section where uh, it, it says, here's some books that we need screened. These are on the list. Um, you know, books like uh, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. That's not screened yet. That's kind of a popular book. Maybe there's a parent who can go through that. And what they can do with their phone is they can use their phone to take a picture of it, upload a, a, a shot, a, a screenshot of the book, highlight the area that's objectionable, add maybe a, a little brief description, and that's it. Uh, there's even a live demo here if you want to see exactly how this is done uh, that they've put together. And uh, you can see here um, how, yeah, so it's just, a, it's on your phone. You go to the website. You don't even need an app. And you can start doing this. So, um, so anyway, check that out. Screenitfirst.com. And I think it's definitely well-fitting within the theme of this particular podcast, which is going to be red pill books or books that I found uh, to be uh, red pills. Um, so let's, let's start here. Um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do, and I need to do a few books and then I'll take questions. We'll take a break. So if you have questions, anything is fine. Anything that's in the news, whatever you can put in uh, the chat box here. You know, part of the reason I'm doing this is also uh, just to get back in the swing of things. I thought this was an easy topic for me to talk about just books that have um, been, uh, and, and I should explain probably for those who don't know what a red pill is, but books who have red pilled me, meaning books that uh, had information that I can, that, that changed the way I looked at things. Uh, that's really what a red pill is. Now, some people will talk about red pill books and they're, you know, Books that uh, show that we're controlled by lizards or something, right? It was a red pill. And it, it, it doesn't mean that a red pill book is necessarily the truth. It's supposed to be. I mean, some, it, by definition, I guess it should be. It, it, it's the revelation of the truth. But some people will think that lies are the truth, right? So, so not every book that someone says or, or documentary or piece of information that someone says is a red pill is actually a red pill. But, uh, but, but it goes back to a movie, The Matrix, and uh, this option between the red and the blue pill, the red pill being uh, understanding what reality really is, what, what's really going on. So um, so these were just books that I found particularly informative. They're secondary sources. Uh, I think maybe one has primary sources in it. Uh, but these are books that that framed the way I looked at certain things and I and, and it changed the way I looked at certain things or at least uh, challenged the way I looked at them previously. For the better. And it's influenced even this podcast to some extent, the way that I look at things compared to the way that maybe other commentators uh, look at things. And, and I can compare myself before having uh, looked at this information and after and, and seen uh, a development, a positive development. So uh, we're going to start with with this. Um, this is a book called Returning to Reality, Christian Platonism for Our Tom Times by Paul Tyson. I've never talked about this book on the podcast, but as I was going through some of the books that I've read that I found very influential, I read this book, I believe, in 2018, 2017, I think 2018, spring semester, if I'm not mistaken. And it wasn't assigned. It wasn't, uh, I had a, a philosophy class at Southeastern and, um, we had to watch a documentary, Roger Scruton's uh, documentary about beauty, which I totally recommend that documentary. Please go watch that. If you've never seen, uh, it's called Why Beauty Matters, I think, by Roger Scruton. It's on, I think, Vimeo. You can check it out. Uh, it's like over and it's like in about an hour, maybe a little over that, but it, it's worth it. And so th this got me uh, thinking, what is it about this particular documentary, this Why Beauty Matters that I resonate with. And it's some of these red pills are really uh, things I knew kind of were true, but I didn't have any categories for it. I, I never really heard it articulated. And, and this is one of those. 
Um, I was shocked to be on. Well, I, surprised. I'll say surprised. I was surprised to find out how much, how many Platonic categories are found, especially in the New Testament. It, 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 it wasn't something I was prepared for. And it's very integrated, um, actually. And this was the book that kind of helped me understand that. And I'm just going to read the description and then maybe get into a little more of why I found this to be particularly helpful and why you should read it. I mean, it was, it was, it's not an old book. It was published in 2014 um, by Paul Tyson. But here's what it says. Uh, Could it be that we have lost touch with some basic human realities in our day of high-tech efficiency, frenetic competition, and ceaseless consumption? Have we turned from the moral, the spiritual, and even the physical realities that make our lives meaningful? These are metaphysical questions, questions about the nature of reality, but they are not abstract questions. These are very down-to-earth questions that concern power and the collective framework of belief and action governing our daily lives. This book is an introduction to the history, theory, and application of Christian metaphysics. Yet this book is not just an introduction. It is also a passionately argued call for a profound change in the contemporary Christian mind. Paul Tyson argues that as a Western Christian's culture's Christian Platonist understanding of reality was replaced by modern pragmatic realism, uh, we turned not just from one outlook on reality to another, but away from reality itself. This book seeks to show that if we can recover this ancient Christian outlook on reality reframed for our day, then we will be able to recover a way of life that is in harmony with the human and divine truth. And so uh, with the term metaphysics, for those who don't understand, this is just our understanding of reality. Metaphysics is the study of uh, what constitutes reality itself? What kinds of things are out there? I mean, a materialist would say everything's material. Is that really true? Or are there non-material things that actually exist in reality? That's metaphysics. Up until this point, a lot of my reading had been presuppositional apologetics uh, in, w- w- in the category I would consider philosophy, which is very heavy on um, epistemology. So that's the, the nature of uh uh, not not the nature of, of reality so much, but more how do we know? How, how can we even approach that question, right? And this was, I think, one of the first books that really got me to grapple with metaphysics. And it's changed over the course of time. It's changed the way I think I viewed certain things. Um, it, 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 Platonism, and I, I feel like I'm not doing this justice, so just bear with me here. But Platonism... Uh, just really boiled down is this idea. Think of Plato's cave. If you have any uh, understanding of that, it's this idea that there, there is reality truly exists, that the things in our world are meaningful and that they actually conform to uh, somewhat of a higher level of being. So oftentimes the example of like a circle will be used. There's, you know, you can't really make a perfect circle, but we know that a perfect circle exists. And so there's all these kind of standards of perfection that that even uh, when we talk about masculinity, there's something we're trying to be that exists in reality, right? But it not, might not be in our physical world. There, there are things beyond this physical world. There, there, there are things that are mysterious to us even, but we know they exist in, intuitively. We know this. And you see glimpses of this in scripture. You see when Paul even in, says things like, uh, you know, we see in part, but we will see face to face. It's it's that, that that's a very platonic thing to kind of say, um, especially if you get into the original language and, and what it's communicating. And, and Paul Tyson teases this out. So I'm not going to uh, do justice to what he's already done. But this has, I think, um, ramifications for how we live our lives, how we see the, the way that we operate in this world. It's not just cause and effect. It's not just uh, action and reaction. It, there's something more going on. And uh, you, you think of uh, even l- writers like Lewis and Tolkien, who were very influenced by pl- Platonism. In fact, the Silver Chair in the Chronicles of Narnia series is basically Plato's cave. Uh, it, and I didn't know that when I was little reading this book. But anyway, I think when you understand that, it just gives a richer, to me at least, it gave me a richer understanding of my life, the significance of my life and of the, the activities that take place in this temporal world. So returning to reality, Christian Platonism for our times, uh, Paul Tyson uh, is the author of that particular book. I'm going to take a few questions and then I'll get into some more books that were red pills for me. Uh, 
let's see, we have a question here. I hope John will at some point review the movie Police State by Dinesh D'Souza. Uh, I don't think I've seen Police State by Dinesh D'Souza. I, there's a lot of documentaries people send me that I am books that I kind of skim or I read or, or I watch a few minutes of it and decide whether or not. And I, I'm wondering if this is one of the ones that I did watch a few minutes of, a, but then I, um, is this, is this the one about George Floyd and the whole, what, you know, what happened in Minneapolis or is that, am I thinking of a different documentary? Maybe someone can confirm for me. If not, then I don't think I've, I've ever seen it. So, uh, if, if people recommend it, I'll, I'll put it on the list and, uh, look at it at some point. Um, let's see, we have, uh, a, a sure guide to love <laughs> is the, uh, the, the name here. Uh, can you explain your view of the dominion mandate in Genesis and where you think some get it wrong? How does the life of Christ relate to it? Um, I'm not sure exactly what's meant by this question, but I'm going to give it my best shot. So uh, the dominion mandate uh, to um, for, for mankind, for Adam, and I think this extends to Eve as well, because she's his helper, uh, to have dominion over the earth is used by a lot of different Christians in different ways. In fact, when I was in seminary, I remember an ethics class, this was used in uh, the Abad and Shamar, keep and cultivate the garden. This was actually translated as to worship and obey in, in the class I had. And since then, I've actually rejected that. I don't think that's accurate. I think that was a stretch. And I think it was, uh, it, it, here's how it was framed. I'll just tell you. And, and I'm, I'm not blaming uh, the professor who told me this necessarily. I, I think they, they got it from somewhere else and they weren't Hebrew scholars or anything. But what uh, he told us was that the whole purpose in the, uh, the Dominion Mandate was to create worshipers through procreation. And um, these, these would, in a perfect world, they would worship and obey God. That's what Adam was supposed to do. And because of the curse of sin, uh, that did not happen. And so when Christ came, now the way that we fulfill this mandate, so this is the Dominion Mandate still, is to make disciples. So, so making disciples is an extension of the dominion mandate. So it's almost like a replacement or an abrogation. It's it's a uh, it's it's how you fulfill it today. The command of God in Genesis today is the Great Commission, right? And in a southeastern, I think they to call themselves a Great Commission seminary. You can see why that has an appeal. You know, we're fulfilling the dominion mandate here. I don't think that's accurate. If that's what the question is is aimed at. Um, I, I certainly think that can fit into the, the Dominion mandate because uh, it is related to uh, the control and influence of Christ, which is that that is basically the kingdom. The kingdom of God is uh, where uh, Christ has dominion and influence and so forth. Um, that's why when Christ was on this earth, when he, he talks about um, the, the kingdom is present with you and stuff, it, it's I'm here. <laughs> my it's my dominion. Um, but I, I think, though, if we want to be about original intent, if we want to be about uh, the original intention that God had, I really do think the dominion mandate is is man's um, control over nature, man's stewardship, really, over nature. And that's why Adam is first given the task of naming the animals, because naming is implies control. If you define something, you have an ability to control that thing. This is one of the reasons the left uh, is so concerned with putting the microscope on us, defining what Christian nationalism is, what, what all the things that we hold dear. Every time we, uh, I remember when the Gadsden flag became popular again. Remember that, the don't tread on me. And immediately within two seconds, the left had to define what that meant. The reason is, is because they, you have control over these things when you can define them. So the reason the Confederate statues and now founding father statues are coming down is like they've been given the control to def of defining these things. And that was the, the control Adam had at, uh, of all of creation, of all of, uh, of the animals at the beginning of creation, all living things. And so I, I think that um, it, it should be properly uh, translated to keep and cultivate the garden. That was his job. And that's our job with the material that God has made in this in this realm. Our jobs in this temporal realm, physical realm, is to manage it, to steward it uh, to the glory of God. And we could go all sorts of directions on there. 
I suppose, and maybe do a whole podcast at some point. But I, I hope that maybe gets at um, if I didn't hit it, I am I do apologize. Um, but the life of Christ, how does I'll just say briefly too, how does the life of Christ relate to it? I, I think what that I, I think perhaps the question there is uh, maybe along the lines of like the Great Commission and how does uh, the the New Covenant how does that relate to the Dominion Mandate? Well. I think it restores our ability uh, as as believers, at least. Um, it it guides us towards it, it orients us towards a heavenly good. So it's not that non Christians can't, by um, a, a certain instinct that God has programmed into all creation and all of mankind, uh, do things to have dominion. I, I don't think that's true, but I do think that Christians are better suited for that. This is one of the reasons that the Christian nationalist, quote unquote, people think that, hey, it's better for Christians to be in elected office. They are the ones that have a better understanding. They have access to the special revelation and they're led by the Holy Spirit and they're going to make decisions, uh, Lord willing. I mean, if things are working correctly, that will, or that are better suited. That's at least how it should happen. And we, we know that there are Christians who uh, aren't always acting in accord with what the Bible teaches, but but they should. If they're being discipled in the Word in Scripture, they should have tools and an ability that uh, goes beyond those who are not. So uh, I think uh, even when it comes to business and other matters in this temporal world, you're you're going to find that um, that Christians are going to behave in ways that, uh, or at least they should. There's a general trend that they're they're going to do a better job of taking dominion. And isn't that the story of Western civilization, to be quite honest with you? Uh, the, the civilization that was so influenced by Christianity for so long. So uh, I don't know if I'm hitting it. I hope I am. <laughs> I hope I am. Uh, but we got to move on. And so uh, someone can ask a follow-up question if I didn't uh, get to it there. Um, okay, police state is about January 6th. I haven't seen it then. Um, I kind of lived it though. So I guess I, I've seen a few January 6 documentaries. I did not see that one. But uh, in, in each case, I was kind I didn't really learn much. Uh, I, I was kind of like, okay, I mean, I, I lived it. And then I, I guess I read enough on the Ray Epps stuff and other things to be like, okay, that's, I, I, I kind of know what happened at least as much as we can know. I think Tucker Carlson's doing some great interviews, by the way, on, on this topic. Uh, but yeah, maybe, maybe I'll look into it. I don't know. Is it free? If, it, if it's free. Uh, maybe I'll look into it. Um, okay. Um, there's no more questions for now. If you have questions or comments, though, feel free to put them in the chat. I'm going to keep going with some of these books and I'll try to speed it up a little since we're almost half an hour in here. Um, ideas have consequences. I did a, a series of podcasts on this actually with my father and my brother. Uh, I've read this book twice and I probably will read it again because this book really was, this was probably the most the, the most um, profound red pill I've ever read in book form. And the description says, this is by Richard Weaver, in what has become a classic work, Weaver unsparingly diagnoses the ills of our age and offers a realistic remedy. He asserts that the world is intelligible and that man is free. Uh, the catastrophe of our age are the product of unintelligent choice and the, and, uh, the cure lies in man's recognition that ideas like actions have consequences. A cure he submits is possible. It lies in the right use of man's reason. In the renewed acceptable acceptance, rather, of an absolute reality and in the recognition that ideas like actions have consequences. This is a really good, and, I, and the order that I put these in is important. This is a good follow-up to Tyson's book, or, or you can read Tyson's after Richard Weaver, because this is also about Platonism, to be honest with you. This is um, about how it starts with William of Ockham. It's not a history, but... It's uh, William of Ockham's ideas, uh, how they played out in history, right? So we don't we don't want to blame everything on William of Ockham. There's seldom people that you can blame everything on, even Karl Marx, even Darwin. It's yes, they bear a lot of <laughs> and Freud. The, these guys bear a lot of blame for things, but it it's never one person acting alone, right? And so um, I'm sensitive to that because that's ideologies form sometimes around these things. It's all Hegel. And then you look at the world binary. It's either Hegel or not Hegel. It's 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 not all William of Ockham, but um, but he makes the case that Ockham's uh, ideas, um, nominalism, were uh, 
were, were influential on producing modernity. And that modernity is a rejection of the Platonic metaphysic, right? That, that, that there is um, a reality beyond us that we should be aiming for and orienting ourselves toward. Uh, so I, I would definitely recommend this because it reads almost like a newspaper. When you read this, you can't believe this was written in 1948. It, it, it seems to diagnose exactly what we're living in today. And I think if Richard was just very, uh, Weaver was very prescient. He could see beyond his own time to see what would happen. And, and how did he do that? How did he know? Well, he could see philosophically uh, what was happening. And, and yes, I've read, you know, I've read Francis Schaeffer. I've read, you know, the, the, the typical Christian books, Reformed Christians are supposed to read on these things. And um, I don't, I, I, I really think Richard Weaver's analysis is one of the best analysis. I, I would put it above um, even How Should We Then Live, which I think is a good book for the most part. But I, I think Weaver's really onto something uh, with this and, and read some of his other books too. He's got a, a number of good books, but that's the place I'd start. Uh, next is in, in a similar vein, uh, David Wells, uh, no place for truth or whatever happened to evangelical theology. And the description here is, has something indeed happened to evangelical theology and to evangelical churches? According to David Wells, the evidence indicates that evangelical pastors have abandoned their traditional role as ministers of the word to become therapists and managers of the small enterprises we call churches. Along with their parishioners, they have abandoned genuine Christianity and biblical truth in favor of the sort of interdirected experiential religion that now pervades Western society. Major red pill. Okay, this book showed me and it helped me understand that, okay, most of what calls itself Christianity has already compromised in the United States. That's why I'm I, I'm not as disappointed and not as surprised when I see compromise because I realize, okay, the vast majority, and I'm talking about even Southern Baptists, I'm talking about the, you know, the most conservative in, in the United States. They've slid into a, a modern mindset, and, and it starts really with pastors, the role of the pastor being respected and now not respected uh, because of modernity, because the, they were replaced by the psychologists and the therapists. And, uh, and, and now, I mean, the uh, activists, I mean, how many Christians are also pastors are basically just activists. They're social justice warriors, right? These are things that have a higher cash value. They're, they're more esteemed. They're more respected. And so uh, you look at even the evening news. Are they calling pastors on to comment on the issues of the day? I mean, there was a time when pastors would have, think of the Black Robe Regiment, right? Like pastors were the educated ones. Pastors would have been talking about these things, but not now. Now, you know, we're going to call in our experts. And so pastors, in order to regain what had been lost, uh, there was an attempt, and new evangelicalism is this attempt, to reorientate what a pastor is. They're a therapist. They're your buddy. Uh, they're a manager. Um, and I have to tell you, a lot of churches I've been, uh, well, I shouldn't say a lot, but churches I've been a part of and a lot of churches I've observed and the way I was even trained in seminary, totally infused with this, in my opinion, totally infused with this. Um, even as I saw the curriculum change at Southeastern before I left, we're, we're replacing, you know, classes on theology with Christian leadership. Like, what is this? And, you know, in the classes, like, how do you make your church more diverse? You know, things like that. That's, uh, that's the problem. That is modernity. Uh, that is a, an inward oriented navel gazing at yourself, looking at just, just the temporal, not orienting, orient, uh, uh, orienting your life to the higher life. Uh, that exists uh, to the to to God and, and what He's trying to communicate. It's bringing everything down. It's uh, the immanentizing of the eschaton. Um, and David Wells, I think, really expands on what Weaver starts. He shows how this plays out in Christianity, and I think it's a, a great book. Um, so, with that, uh, I will just look to see if there's questions. I think I don't think we have uh, any questions. Let's just keep going here. Um, how to be a conservative, Roger Scruton, how to be a conservative. Uh, this is the next book. And, and this is a book that I am going to actually review with my dad and my brother. It's, it's actually been months that I plan to do this. And with all the tragedies that have happened and, and it just with family, it just hasn't really worked out, but we'll do this soon. Um, and here, here's the, th I'll just be brief on this because I have so many more books to talk about. Roger Scruton is, is I think a, an excellent thinker. Uh, if you read Charles Haywood, uh, you know, he thinks that Roger Scruton's time has basically passed, perhaps, and that it's uh, we need something that's 
beyond the sort of Burkean paleoconservative uh, model. We need something new. And of course, he has foundationalism as his his philosophy. But I think that you need someone like a Scruton, even if you're going to be a foundationalist. Scruton really gets at what makes uh, things valuable, what makes things true, beautiful, and valuable. And in this book, uh, and there's many books by him that are good, but in this particular one, each chapter takes a different issue. Like, it, like one chapter is on the environment. One chapter is on the market, uh, as I remember. There, there's a number of different chapters on different subjects. And it's surprising. This is where the red pill comes in. It's surprising to someone who's kind of influenced by talk radio or just neoconservative books where you, you have your you, you can pick up almost any of them and it's going to be the same thing. You're going to have a, a, a chapter on the free market and the free market is the solution to everything. And, and we got to get back to that. And then you'll have a chapter perhaps now on family values. It's, it's no longer even like you know, traditional marriage. It's just family values, this broad concept. We got to get back to that. And we uh, got to make sure that we're drilling for oil. I guess that would be under free market. We got to make sure that our border is secure because we need law and order, right? These are all kinds of the, the, the conservative values that uh, you'll see on like a Sean Hannity, let's say. And in this book, what I found is that this actual conservatism up until, you know, now what calls itself conservatism is more is liberalism. Actual conservatism is really not that. Um, the market, yeah, free market is, there is an element that's important there, but it's not like conservatives, true conservatives, aren't slaves to the free market. In other words, they're not looking at like, you know, unrestricted speech in every area and unrestricted pornography and, uh, you know, uh, making sure that every day of the week, including Sunday, must be a day for the market and uh, making sure that we have a global market that without any protections for workers in a particular country, like that's not, none of those things are, are uh, conservative. Conservatives value primarily the people that are part of the nation that the conservatives who are, um, you know, uh, who are a part of, who are crafting policy, the, the nation they're part of, or the region they're part of, or the locality they're part of, they're localists. So they're, they're valuing the people, the tangible people in their lives. And they want their higher good. And so, yes, the market, there's an efficiency there. There's a, uh, there's an invisible hand. Those, you know, sure. But that can also, when the demand is for evil, it can be bad. And so there's restrictions that need to be there. I'm just giving you one example. Uh, same thing with the environment, by the way. Sometimes there, are, and, and conservatives would think more locally, not globally on this. Uh, but yes, for, for local regions, there should be uh, maybe some areas that are quartered off as this is for protection uh, of uh, or environmental protection. There are certain restrictions. Now, here's the thing. Conservatives would be against like a national park system, probably. Uh, that, that was actually a progressive era invention. I was, you know, Teddy Roosevelt was a uh, progressive and all the presidents after him who have federalized all this land. They're progressives, basically. But they would be about a local uh, state and local governments uh, taking measures to conserve their wildlife and their so so anyway that's not something we're we're used to hearing about conservatives because we're constantly going after the environmentalists and we've forgotten what conservation is so this this book really I think helps it it fulfill uh, a conservative who feels like there's gaps in maybe what you you learn on talk radio and so forth. Um, anyone have any questions comments? Uh, by the way, I should probably I'll put this in the chat. If you want to uh, call into the program at all, if you have any questions that you'd like to articulate, not just through uh, text, but also through um, uh, through voice or camera or whatever, I'm just going to put this link in the chat box on YouTube and on Facebook. Uh, you can go there and you can check it out. So, all right. Next book is Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers reading the Bible with the founding fathers. 
And uh, this particular book is by Daniel Dreisbach. I don't believe he's an evangelical. I've met him personally. I've asked him questions and stuff because he spoke at Liberty University when I was a grad student there. Um, this is, I think, the best book, in my opinion, on the if you're going to recommend a book to someone and you could also I recommend Mark David Hall's book on uh, on this topic, too. But I think Daniel Dreisbach has a really good book <laughs> and it shows just the influence of the Bible on the founding generation in ways that you may not have, have known. Now, if you're familiar with like a, a David Barton, let's say, you're going to get a lot of this. But un the unfortunate thing about David Barton to me is he's very sloppy and he's not a trained historian. And it's obvious if you uh, look at his books, uh, the citations in his books and stuff, he'll, he'll be citing like encyclopedias and stuff. And it's like, we need a source, man. Uh, and, and, and that's where I think he gets in most trouble is like uh, when he, he doesn't have good sources and sometimes, you know, he'll he, he's at least before put out quotes that don't really exist or at least we don't have. Um, let's just put it this way. We don't have authentication that they exist and stuff. So you can't really trust. I, I don't trust a, lo a lot of the stuff he read. Uh, he writes. In fact, I did a whole project on Freemasonry and I got a David Barton book. It's a little book he has on it. And there were some helpful things in it, but I had to read it with a very critical eye. I had to look up all the sources and make sure that I sifted them. And so. Daniel Dreisbach, you don't have to do that. That's the nice thing about Dreisbach. He's like, this is, this is accurate stuff. And boy, were the, was the founding generation influenced by Christianity. And, and Dreisbach even makes the case that, look, you, you cannot study the founding generation without an understanding of Christianity. If you do, you're just going to come up with, you're not going to understand them. Um, preferably, you would also have an understanding of classical uh, Greek and Roman um stories and that kind of thing too because that also influenced them but the bible far more far more um i think he might have coined the term hebrew republicanism too i think that might be daniel dreisbach to talk about the system that developed within the united states uh, of representative government and checks and balances and all that but uh, check it out reading the bible with the founding fathers um now i'm going to give you some some red pills on uh the civil war before we get to that uh trey may says conversations that matter do you think we need a biblical chapter and verse answer for everything uh no <laughs> no i don't uh i i mean i'm looking at my truck outside and knowing i know i need to work on it i need to put some shocks in i don't think i need a, a chapter and verse from the bible to i need i need someone who knows about putting shocks in a car right so no um i do not believe that and there, there are people, I guess, who do believe that. I think that the more Gordon Clark wing of presuppositionalism kind of says that kind of thing. Like you have to have a justification in the Bible for everything. And uh, I don't know. I, I just, I, I think of Adam without the canon of scripture. I mean, he had the words of the Lord given to him. We don't know everything the Lord said to him, but um, we, we have a developing uh, revelation in scripture. Uh, things that were mysteries to Old Testament saints are no longer mysteries. In fact, that's the language Paul uses. So there is this uh, development that happens, and I and I don't think that um, that you're gonna you know now that we have a completed canon, it doesn't mean okay, finally we we can operate in this world in every arena before we couldn't or something, right? Uh, all right, so some civil war, American civil war, it's called. I think that's probably the not the best term for it, but that's the term used in the academy. I think war between the states is probably a much better term. Uh, but anyways, uh, the real Lincoln, a new look at Abraham Lincoln, his agenda and the unnecessary and an unnecessary war by Thomas D. Lorenzo. Now, this is probably the most popular book by Thomas D. Lorenzo on Lincoln. I've read all of them. He's got like three books, I think, on Lincoln. They're all good. Uh, this is the first one, though. This is the the gateway. And it's received a lot of criticism. In fact, there is a debate on YouTube between Thomas D. Lorenzo and Harry Jaffa. Because Harry Jaffa is probably more than almost any other figure, the person who has engineered the argument, the Democrats were the slave owners and the racists and the Republicans are the good guys and paved the way for Republicans to do nothing on mo the monument issue and to try to sweep under the rug and relegate all the racism in America to the, to the South and make them the bad guys. That's Harry Jaffa. He's done this to conservatives He's brought by making it not conservative anymore. And Tom DiLorenzo challenges some of this. Now, it's not all of it. It's just some of it. But shows that, look, you know, Lincoln wasn't a conservative guy, you know, because like Lincoln and MLK are like the two now founding fathers of conservatism to modern talk radio hosts who, are, who call themselves conservative. But they're not. Neither of them were conservative. 
And he really shows this in, in a very uh, convincing way. This is another red pill. Uh, complicity, how the North promoted, prolonged, and profited from slavery uh, by its three journalists who live in the North, and they started researching uh, slavery and the complicity of uh, uh, places like um, Rhode Island and Maine and uh, Massachusetts and New York, and they were just shocked at what they found. And they're like, how can we keep relegating? How, how can we keep looking down our noses at the South and saying they, they've got this problem when we were the ones that it was, it was, it was our people that captained the slave ships. They were the, 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 the cruelest part of this whole ordeal was them. So, uh, and we profited from, we're the ones selling these slaves from. So, so anyway, it, it's a, it, it's a book that will help, I think, give a fuller understanding. And, and it's one of the things I've tried to make a point. I said, look, if you're going to rip down all these statues uh, to Southerners, it's an acid that will eat everything. Cause once you know the truth about slavery and who was benefiting you're going to have to rip down a whole bunch of American history in the North as well. The people that uh, are considered, you know, even abolitionists, some of them who profited from this. So um, good book. And then uh, another, I, I, I have so many American Civil War books. I had to really narrow this down. But this is more of a primary source. Is Davis a Traitor by Albert Taylor Bledsoe? This would have been the argument used when Jefferson Davis was in jail. If he went before the Supreme Court, which he never did, he was never tried. But this would have been the argument uh, for why secession was legitimate. Uh, and it is Loctite. I, I have to say, I was shocked when I looked at this book that there I, you can't really oppose it. It's just so um, airtight, this argument. And I think it's been lost. And that's why it's it's just this is just this kind of thing is just dismissed as lost cause, you know, whatever. But it's it's never actually argued against. The points are never brought up and actually defeated. It's just dismissed. And uh, so I, I think there needs to be a renewal of this. Is Davis a Traitor by Albert Taylor Bledsoe? There's a version of this book with an intro by Brian McClanahan and Mike Church, uh, which is the version that I have. All right, I'm going to take some questions if there are any, and then we will, uh, or, or comments, and then we'll get into some a, a few more books. We've been going 40, over 45 minutes now. Uh, and let's see. Conversations that matter. Joel McDermott called Thomas DiLorenzo a racist because of things he's written about Lincoln in the American Civil War period. I did not know that. Joel, for those who don't know, probably most of you don't know who Joel McDermott is, but uh, Joel McDermott was, I believe, the president of American Vision, Gary DeMar's organization for a while. And, you know, big time theonomist, presuppositionalist guy. And he's gone like full woke. And uh, he, I remember I looked, he, he, he wrote a book. I, I've, re I've actually read some of his books. Um, and, and they started, uh, I think the last one I read was the, the bounds of love. It, it, it got, it, it was getting weird to be honest with you. Uh, but his book, um, I I've read portions of his book on slavery. He has a book on slavery and it, it's, it's pretty, in my opinion, it was pretty terrible. Just, it just wasn't well-written. It wasn't, uh, it, it was, it was clear to me, this was an activist, uh, with an activist bent. And I understand we all have a bias, right? When we approach things, we all have a, a bent that we have. Um, part of the goal of writing history, though, is to try to, you know, make sure that we are being as objective as we possibly can. And um, I just did not sense that with Joel. I didn't think I was going to find much helpful in, in, in his stuff. But that doesn't surprise me that he would just, you know, everything's a racist. Every, everyone's a racist. If, if, and, and I've met Tom DiLorenzo and Tom, I've Read enough of Tom DiLorenzo. No, no. The guy, just because of what he thinks about Lincoln. Lincoln was a racist in this. If, if we're operating, I don't like that term, but if we're, we're using uh, the definition of just, you know, a, a uh, someone who thought that white people were inferior or, or superior uh, because of their genetics uh, and that kind of thing, um, I'm pretty sure Lincoln would have qualified for that. But uh, someone asked, do you primarily read uh or audiobook. Uh, I do both. I do both. Um, with a lot of these, a lot of the red pill books, I read them. So sometimes I'll do an audiobook and then I'm like, that was really good. And then I'll, I'm like, I got to go back and slowly read it. You, you absorb more if you read, I tend to find. But if I'm trying to like just make my way through something, I audiobook it. I just did one, The Power Worshippers, right? I'll review that on this podcast at some point. It's the basis for this new documentary on Christian nationalism. I didn't want to read that. <laughs> like I, I already knew what it was going to say. So I, I, you know, you listen to it on like two or three speed and, uh, 
in, sometimes more. And then you, you get through it and you know the basic themes and you go back to the quotes that stood out. And so it, it really depends. Uh, so anyway, all right, let's, let's keep going here on the red pill books. We got, uh, is, uh, Mao, Mao, the unknown story. This is a biography of Mao Zedong by Jung, uh, Shang and John Halliday. And I consider this book to be, I, I know, I knew communism was bad. This was a book that really convinced me that it was bad, like with actual stories, nuts and bolts. This is as bad as it can get. I mean, people eating the barks off trees because they're starving because of decisions made by Mao. I mean, what what happened in China, in Chinese communism, I don't think anything else parallels it. it not, not even what, I mean, what happened in Russia was pretty bad, but Chinese communism, oh my goodness. Uh, it, shocking, shocking the way that Mao looked at people. Just, people just didn't have any value. It's just, uh, and, and so anyway, it just is a real red pill into how evil um communism can be uh and i don't know if this is out of order hold on i should have i should have given you this one first oh well all right i'm going back now uh robert lewis dabney dabney on fire this is um just some a series of essays by robert lewis dabney on feminism and education and and they're very prescient uh he is very prophetic and a lot of people today really hate dabney because they'll look back and they'll say well look he, he was in favor of segregation he was uh, he he was uh, defended um, the well he defended the South. I'm not going to say he actually said the slave trade was an iniquitous traffic. So uh, you know they'll say he defended slavery, but most of the people haven't actually read him. But but yeah, he did after the war. He did uh, support a certain kind of uh, segregation, even in the church, the Presbyterian Church. And people will look at that and say, well, you can dismiss everything Dabney says. Um, and, and I would say there's a lot of people that say things in one area that we disagree with that say a lot of things true in other areas. And Dabney's one of them. Dabney says a lot of really true things. And it's like, how did he know this? How did he know in the late 1800s that we would have sexual anarchy in our schools just because, you know, Catholics and Protestants were being forced together and that kind of thing? He knew. And so um, Dabney on fire. It's a really good. I mean, he, he talks about, you know, what's going to happen under feminism, too. And it's just like. That men are going to abuse their wives more. You know, you talk about all the things that are going to happen, and you're like, oh, yep, that happened. So, all right, back to communism. Uh, Red Republicans and Lincoln's Marxists is another book on Marxism in the Civil War. This is an interesting book, and it's not written. I don't think Al Benson is a historian formally. I, I know Walter Donald Kennedy is not. I've talked to him before on the podcast. Um, he, but he's a, uh, so this is a popular level history, but if you look at the citations, it's very well cited. And I mean, you know, I didn't know things like, you know, Karl Marx is writing to congratulate Abraham Lincoln. What, what's up with that? That what Lincoln was doing was the, um, was the, uh, the, the proletariat's revolution, you know, and, um, and, and you have like in Lincoln's generals and a lot of the people in his cabinet and a lot of the immigrants who came over and fought for the union army. They're, they're Marxists. They're, they're people who came over because of the failed uh, socialist revolutions in 1848. And a lot of them got into newspaper business. I mean, this just showed me why the part of the reason the media is the way it is today. And um, and it, it really made me see it helped me show me the, uh, a different understanding of the American Civil War and at least an angle that I think is often mixed. Here's another one on Marxism called Marx and Satan by Richard Wormbrandt. This is a book that I wish more work would be done on. Richard Wormbrandt, not a historian either. Uh, he was the one who founded Voice of the Martyrs. And he wrote this book and it's got some interesting citations. And um, it's short. It, it just shows that Karl Marx, it, it at least implies that Karl Marx and many of the Russian Marxists were involved in Satanism on some level. Now, it's an incomplete story. And that's one of the reasons that it, it's kind of a red pill, but it's it's like half a red pill. Like you want more to be written on this and it's just not. We Whether or not because things have been suppressed or because people just haven't done the research, it's not a an area that people are looking into. But I really think so, this is a, a, a field that is wide open. If someone wants to draw this connection, you can start with some of the things that Wormbrandt puts in there, but this might be a good grad student uh, undertaking for a thesis or a dissertation. And then last but not least on the communism stuff, uh, Commies, A Journey Through the Old Left, 
The New Left and the Leftover Left by Ronald Radish. This book is about uh, a guy who grew up in New York and he traces communism. And you know, he, he grew up as basically a communist with a communist parents. And he traces the, the people that he interacted with, what they did, who they were, uh, how, um, how deep this penetrated into especially New York uh, culture. And so I, I think this is a, an interesting book for those reasons. Uh, so, and, and it's just interesting too, because it's uh, the narrative, uh, it, it takes a narrative structure. It's, it's stories and so forth. But, uh, but I do think it, it kind of red pills you into like, oh, wow, they, okay. They, they got farther than many, many of us think. Maybe McCarthy was right. Maybe he was right. Uh, okay. Um, this is a book on aliens <laughs> by Gary Bates. I had Gary Bates on the podcast in an interview with him, alien intrusion. It just shows that a lot of these aliens, abductions and sightings and so forth this is a demonic thing this isn't aliens from other planets th this is demons and i think he makes a very compelling case for it uh and then this is a, a book i also interviewed sam lively on this uh, who wrote the trojan mouse how disney is winning the culture war i found this book fascinating uh and i you know there's not a lot of reviews of it there's not a lot of ratings uh, not a lot of people i think have read it but I, I, if you're a parent read this book this is really an interesting book and it reframed the way I thought of the culture war as more of a culture siege that you have kind of a diminishing group of traditional Americans trying to hold on to civilization. And Disney has been one of the main influences uh, helping to siege uh, to, to destroy what was there before. And sometimes in, in, in some subtle ways in, in movies, even like uh, he talks about movies like Beauty and the Beast, which I actually like, you know, and, and there's good things in it. But he, he shows how even movies like that Cartoons like that have um, ha have eroded, uh, you know, certain you know gender stereotypes and things, or I shouldn't say stereotypes, but masculine, feminine roles and uh, things like that. Um, I remember he, he talks about like the Lion King, and he's like, "How come you can only have a strong masculine role with spirituality in if you set it in Africa, like you or another place in Asia? You you can't have that in like Mulan, right? Or you know, Pocahontas talking to her grandmother who's a tree or something. Like you can't have." Christianity, you, you know, Western societies, there's none of that. Um, so he, there's a lot of really interesting things in this book, in my opinion. So if you're a parent, good book to read, just to, to be aware uh, of what's going on. Um, and, and here's some books. Th these are especially, I want to end on these because these are books that I think are especially prescient for what's happening right now in our society. The 2024 election, the debate over Christian nationalism, all this stuff you'll be helped by these books. The Demon and Democracy, Totalitarian Temptations and Free Societies uh, by Legutko. Uh, this is a great book on uh, an individual who lived in Eastern Bloc communism and left and went to the West and said, hey, wait a minute, I thought I left communism. Why are there so many similarities? And he talks about the similarities between communism and then uh, the Western uh, democracies. Uh, Why Liberalism Failed by Patrick Deneen is another one. Now, he, there there's some things I disagree with in this book. I think he goes way too far on the poison pill stuff. Uh, basically, you know, the, the American founding was was a, a classical liberal and that's bad. And we kind of got off on the wrong foot. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think there's some you can see that there were elements uh, during the founding that might not have been good. But I don't think on the whole it was uh, what he describes. But that's not most of the book. Most of the book is just a description of liberalism. And um, the problems with it, and and it, it really describes the right, the political right, and, and the left to some extent. But it really showed me, okay, the political right has a problem here. Uh, and uh, here's another one that's along the same lines: Return of the Strong Gods, Nationalism, Populism, and the Future of the West by Reno. Um, this is a really great book critiquing um, uh, liberalism as well, and. Uh, conservative, what, what we consider conservative and liberal or conservative and Marxist, progressive, statist, leftist. Uh, he, he critiques, he, he shows that both of these are two wings of liberalism and that, that you know, and it can't really, it's unsustainable. Uh, and then here's another one. Um, this is more fine tuning to the 1960s, but the age of entitlement America since the sixties by Christopher Caldwell I think this everyone should read this book. Uh, this will give you a very different view of the civil rights movement. And he, he argues in this book 
that what happened during the civil rights movement and the civil rights acts was we adopted a new constitution without voting on it, without realizing it, that this has fundamentally given the court the authority to overturn the original constitution. And now we have a totally different understanding of the constitution. A lot of supposed conservatives who want to die on the hill of the constitution, they're not even thinking in terms of the original compact. They're thinking in terms of the new constitution that's been defined by Judge Earl Warren and others. And um, one of the things that I thought was, especially if you read the uh, book by Richard Weaver, um, and then you read this book, if you, if you read Ideas of Consequences, Richard Weaver talks about at the end that private property is kind of the last, the, the, the last vestige of uh, a sense of usness and ownership and um, identity uh, that's left that hasn't been eroded by the acid of modernity. And, and that this is, is a hope. This, this helps us uh, gain, it gives us a start to try to overturn what's happened. And Caldwell shows that actually in the 1960s, we kind of gave up on that too. That with the Civil Rights Act, we gave up on uh, private property at that point as well. And, and now that is being eroded too. Um, and uh, it's kind of sad in a way. I mean, a lot of this stuff is sad. And these, and these are critiques. They're not giving a positive vision, but they're just critiques of what we live in. Um, you know, Stephen Wolf tried to give a positive vision and he was, you know, <laughs> by all the liberals came out to uh, pummel him. I think anyone who gives a positive vision is going to be pummeled. Um, the next book that I'm writing right now will give somewhat of a positive vision, by the way. And so uh, people do need to look towards the future. And this is what Charles Haywood did with foundationalism. I'm not endorsing any of those things. I'm just saying that someone does need to come up with, okay, what's next? Liberalism doesn't work. What's next? Um, how can we learn from the experience of history, take the good things, the true and valuable things, uh, the things that are the transcendentals, and how can we then apply them to our current scenario with technology and all the rest? Uh, that's the work that needs to be done now. Um, another civil rights book, the autobiography of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, and this is uh, by Claiborne Carson, who's the editor, but it's a lot of uh, MLK writings and so forth kind of put together. Now, why this book? This is a pro MLK book. It is. This is, you know, people who like MLK read this kind of a book, but there is a myth of MLK on the right that MLK is basically reducible to, I have a dream, <laughs> Right. And that's a it's a great line in a, in a decent speech, uh, even though it was somewhat plagiarized. It's a great line. So is that the real MLK, though? And this shows and, and by the way, this this is not a complete red pill like this will just this, this shows that the best face you can put on MLK. He's a he's a creature of the left. Uh, this is where, you know, he talks about even like the third great awakening uh, in America was him with Jews and Catholics marching right it, it, he's ecumenical he's even in the front picture here it's it's him and gandhi picture of gandhi there with him um mlk you know really looked to uh to, to gandhi and to the hindus because they had spiritual strength the guy was not a christian at all you find that out reading this book but you also find out that he was he was someone of the left i think this is the one at the end it talks about uh how he he before he was killed he wanted to do a poor person's march and he had all these plans. I don't know if it talks about the. I'm trying to remember now. I don't think it talks about the Native American stuff that he was going to do. But he uh, he he was suspected of communist ties. Obviously, that's why he was being surveilled. And um, he he definitely, if he was alive today, I'll put it this way: after reading this book, you do get the impression, okay, like he would have been kind of for the CRT stuff. And the conservatives today try to make him like, oh, and he was against that because of one line from one speech, but I, I don't think that's the case. And that was a, this is a good place, I think, to start uh, King in his own words. Um, so this is, it's not a book against him. Again, this is a book pro King, but uh, you'll kind of find that out uh, as you're reading it. So these are the books that I, it was hard to narrow it down because there's a bunch of books, but uh, these are the books that I thought would be good, uh, good books to recommend for reading in 2024. These are just books, and my list is expanding. These are certainly books that have changed the way I think. And there's, uh, obviously it's not comprehensive. There's more books. Um, but if anyone has questions or comments, anyone who's streaming, uh, now is the time before we end the podcast, land the plane. So uh, some people are, it looks like they're purchasing some of these books. 
uh, right now. Someone just said they bought uh, four Roger Scruton books. Uh, I think that was before, though, I started recording. Terry Strange says it is important to read MLK for yourself. I agree with all these things, to be honest with you, uh, in, in all these areas. Secondary sources can be good. I mean, I write secondary sources, right? The, piecing together what primary sources say, but it's always good to get back to the primary sources. Read the primary sources. And um, I think that's that's where you're rooted in actual facts as much as possible. Um, someone asked me, okay, uh, Truddle says, the thing mid Big Eva seem most allergic to is confidence and confidence underpins positive vision. Okay, that, that wasn't the one. Okay, the speech was decent. The I have a dream speech. Uh, that's how you know it was plagiarized. <laughs> That's if it was a good speeches are always plagiarized. I, I don't know about that. Um, do you have affiliate links? Oh, that's a good question. No, no, I don't. I used to. Uh, so in other words, can you, can I purchase it on Amazon and do you have affiliate links? No, <laughs> I don't. Sorry. Uh, maybe I should. I, I never thought that that was um, that lucrative unless you had like, I don't know, millions of people. I, it just, I, I didn't do it. Sorry. Um, Oh, thank you, Trey. So all of John's speeches are plagiarized. <laughs> no, no. And but there there is there is someone out there who does think that about me. There is someone who has accused me privately to a number of folks of plagiarizing my my last book I published, um, which is kind of laughable uh, if you read the book and see how many footnotes are in it. Um, very hard to plagiarize when almost every sentence it seems like has every paragraph has a footnote, at least one, sometimes multiple footnotes. Uh, by definition, plagiarism is not giving credit to people. So I, I, I string together a bunch of primary sources, but I show you exactly where I get them. And that's just the way I write. That was the way you're, you're trained as a historian. Uh, I, I used to have to, when I was doing you know grading papers for, for uh, undergrad students, I mean, I had to use the, uh, the plagiarism software and I had to mark down for plagiarism and stuff. You'd be surprised. I mean, it, it happens all the time. Uh, people plagiarize and i'm sure with ai stuff it's happening even more all right well we're gonna end the podcast uh i hope that that was helpful for just a, a reading list if you're looking for books to read in 2024 here's a few that have helped me and maybe these are some books that would interest you there's a lot more about a lot of topics that we could probably discuss but but these are the ones i thought these are particularly relevant for the times in which we live and they've helped me so um, God bless, uh, more coming. And, uh, I'm trying to think when the next time I, I don't have a scheduled podcast necessarily, but I'll probably do one, uh, at least early next week. And I'll try to do a few next week if I can. So I, I, I am aware of what's going on out there, um, in the SBC and in other places in, in political and religious places. And, uh, uh, I am going to probably do a news roundup next week. At least I'm thinking about doing that. And, um, and maybe a book review of uh, the power worshipers. Um, also, I think fairly soon, I'm probably going to do a review of biblical critical theory by Watson. I think it's Watson. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Lots more coming. And I will announce when we are going to discuss Roger Scruton's book, how to be a conservative. I will announce that very soon. So uh, stay tuned, uh, like the podcast, go to the social media links, uh, Facebook, Twitter, uh, YouTube, subscribe, all of that stuff. I'm, I'm the worst at promoting myself, <laughs> but go to all those places and uh, God bless. More coming by now.